What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. We are delighted to have you with us. I'm going to give you the phone numbers here. Uh, But before we do, we're going to uh, go very briefly here to the 141st Supreme Convention of the Knights of Columbus. It is happening this week in Orlando. Jack Williams is on the J-O-B. Hey, Jack. Hey, Tom, how are you? Very well. How are you? How's it going there? It's going very well. Me and 2,500 of my closest friends, and I'm <laughs> pleased to be joined by Jonathan Reyes, who's the Senior Vice President for Strategic Outreach for the Knights of Columbus, and is also co-anchoring along with Doug Keck our television coverage of the Knights of Columbus Supreme Convention. And Jonathan, uh, we find ourselves uh, in America and really across the globe in a, in a time where hope is waning in the hearts of some people. Talk a little bit about how the Knights of Columbus help to restore and provide hope for those who may seem hopeless. Yeah, thanks for that question, Jack. I think I would say it's the Knights of Columbus in partnership with good friends like EWTN because I think a lot of people look around and the news they see is so dark and it's always the what's causing strife, where is their division, what things can go wrong. And an event like this is an opportunity for one of the organizations, we're a big one, we have two million members, but to simply point across the globe to things that the church is doing that are serving the people of God and serving everyone, from charitable work, but also to spreading the faith. Because at the end of the day, our faith is in Jesus Christ. So if we can make him known, and sometimes through charitable work, sometimes through preaching the word of God, sometimes through just fellowship and fraternity, and EWTN is lifting that kind of thing up, I just think it's an opportunity for people to say, you know what? I thought it was dark, but there's light all over the place. I don't always see it, but it's out there. As far as what's stopping you from becoming a Catholic, becoming a member of the Knights of Columbus is something that should make you want to become Catholic. And if someone within the sound of our voice is interested in learning more about the Knights of Columbus, how would they go about doing that? KFC.org. Come on and check us out. Uh, uh, Jonathan Reyes, Senior Vice President for Strategic Outreach here at the 141st Supreme Convention of the Knights of Columbus, live from Orlando, Florida. Back to you, Tom. Jack, thank you so much. And uh, for all of you Knights who want to uh, see what's going on in Orlando, if you can't be there, you can certainly check out our EWTN uh, television coverage uh, this week, uh, the next couple of days, here on EWTN. Let me give you those phone numbers, and then we'll get rolling here with Call to Communion. Our phone number is 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-288. 3986. If you uh, are listening to us outside of North America, outside the U.S. and Canada, you'll want to dial 1 and then 205-271-2985. And of course, you can always uh, send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer, Matt Kabinsky, our phone screener, Jeff Burson handles social media for us. Uh, You can also ask a question via YouTube or Facebook. Just put that question in the comments box. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Doing great. How are you? Doing decent. Thank you. You know what they say, the, what is the coldest season in the South? I feel like there's a catch to this question. Well, that would be summer. 
because air conditioning is running ah, full yes. blast. And you, you can imagine in Orlando, where Jack and all the Knights are, it's probably uh, nice and cool there at the convention center, wouldn't you say? I imagine so. We're going to lead off with a very interesting question here. This is from uh, a, a young lady named Madison. Madison says, I'm discerning marriage with an Anglican. He is totally on board with any children we would have being raised Catholic and attending Catholic Mass. But for the sake of family unity, he also doesn't want to attend his church by himself on Sunday. Since he is not yet ready to become Catholic, but also has a high view of his version of the Eucharist, it is very important to him to attend Anglican Mass and receive weekly. So basically, my question is, is it wrong to raise children Catholic, but then attend two liturgies every Sunday? One Catholic, one Anglican, even if the kids are educated Catholic and only receive the sacraments in the Catholic Church. Thanks again, Madison. Yeah, thanks, Madison. I appreciate the question. So the the difficulty you always have in a, a marriage with disparity of cult, when you have parents that are in two different religious traditions, is the danger <coughs> of uh, of the children growing up indifferent to religious difference. Yeah. And the, I mean, the problem of indifferentism is a real one because if if uh, you know Christianity is just flavors of ice cream between Catholic and and uh, and Anglican or Catholic and something else. It doesn't take too long uh, for that lowest common denominator attitude to just come and denominate you right out of the church. Uh, It doesn't mean it can't be done successfully. And I think the church tells us that we have to catechize to uh, ecumenical sensitivity. We, We have to teach Catholic children to respect other religious traditions, to look for points of commonality, uh, to celebrate those things that we have in common. All that's positive, uh, but it has to be done with discretion. Now, I, I'm not in a position to tell you what that discretion looks like in your own family. That's something you've got to discern for yourself. So I, I can't say there's an absolute prohibition on that kind of practice, uh, but it would definitely come with risks, I think. And the yeah. risk is that the kids would uh, more or less consider the differences to be incidental and, and fall into a kind of indifferentism. Madison, thanks for your email. Here's one from Fran right here in Alabama. Would you please speak about how to make a good confession? I love the practice of going to confession once a month, but I'm always worried that I'm doing it wrong. Is it as simple as a laundry list? As, that is, I did this sin two times, this other sin three times, or is it okay to make it a little more nuanced? Again, Fran Fran in Alabama. Yeah, thanks, Fran. I appreciate the question. So what the Church tells us we have to do in the confessional is to recount the known mortal sins in kind and number, and uh, no indication that we have to go into any sort of heavy-duty elaboration. So uh, occasionally a priest might ask you to add a little bit of detail. I mean, you know, I remember going to confession once, my first confession ever. I'll I'll actually say this on the air because it's a little bit amusing. And I confessed to the sin of idolatry. And that was it. That's all I said. I said other things, too, but I didn't give any elaboration. And I had in my mind my quasi-idolatrous worship of various rock bands when I was in high school. But I I I didn't say that. And the priest, I think, is having images of me bowing down to idols. And he was like, uh, what do you mean by idolatry? You know. So we got through that one and went on to the rest of the confessional. Very good. Fran, right here in Alabama, thanks for listening. Thank you for your question. Hey, lines are starting to fill up. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, do give us a call at 
288-EWTN. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. It's called to communion with Dr. David Anders here on EWTN. If you have a question for David, uh, please do give us a call at 833 833- 288-EWTN. would love to talk with you this afternoon. 833-288-3986. But first, let me tell you about a wonderful new book available now from EWTN's Religious Catalog. How about this? Always a Catholic. How to keep your kids in the faith for life and bring them back if they've strayed by Father Sebastian Walsh. Now, most Catholic parents agree our number one goal in life is to pass on the faith to our kids. But, you know, more and more we see that today's world has a million ways to steal their souls. So, in his book, Always a Catholic, How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life, Father Sebastian Wall shows you how to cooperate with God to bring about the fulfillment of His will for your kids. This great book, Always a Catholic, reminds us that keeping our kids in the faith, or helping them get back to it, is more than a matter of technique. Above all, it's about the way we live out our our own Catholicism in our own lives and as a family day to day. Father Walsh gives you the principles drawn from Catholic teaching, the truths of human nature, and the best habits of successful Catholic families. You need these to transmit the joy and confidence that will keep your kids in the faith for life. Fantastic. It's available right now at EWTNRC.com. I'll give you the title one more time. Um, Always a Catholic. How to Keep Your Kids in the Faith for Life and Bring Them Back if They Have Strayed. That's by Father Sebastian Walsh. I'm sure you'll find it in the search engine if you put in his last name, W-A-L-S-H-E. Available right now at EWTN. RC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN, beginning today with Caitlin, a first-time caller in Pennsylvania, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Caitlin. What's on your mind today? Oh, hi, Dr. David Andrews. Um, I just wanted to tell you first off that me and my father just loved your show. When he was sick on dialysis, um, we used to listen to you on the radio, and he always said that he wanted to call call your show, but he, he shortly passed away after that. But my question is, what are the seven virtues? I believe there are seven. I'm really not sure. And what are the seven virtues, and what has to be done to obtain the virtues? Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. What a great question. Hardly a better question than I could imagine. That's yeah. fantastic. So the Church divides uh, the, the seven virtues into three theological virtues and four moral virtues or cardinal virtues. And the theological virtues are those that are mentioned by St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, faith, hope, and charity. Uh, faith, of course, is the virtue of believing what God has revealed and committing oneself entirely to God. Um, hope is faith-oriented to the future. It's you know, believing the promises of God can apply to me, and that it is possible for me to live the life of faith and charity and to make it to heaven. Uh, charity, of course, is that settled disposition of the will whereby we will what God wills. We we desire the good that God w- desires, uh, the good of other persons for God's sake. Um, so that's charity. Um, uh, then the, the, uh, the cardinal virtues, the moral virtues, are prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. Prudence is the basically the virtue of being a good decision maker. How do you apply... 
uh, what you know about the virtues or the context of your moral life to the concrete circumstances of your daily living. Um, justice is the settled disposition of the will to render to another what is his or her due. Uh, fortitude and temperance refer to the conduct of one's own life. Uh, fortitude is the ability to press forward in the face of difficulty, not to shirk from, from hard work or pain. And, uh, and temperance, of course, is the ability to moderate our attachment to bodily pleasure. So if you've, if you've got all seven of those, you're in pretty darn good shape. Now, in terms of how we acquire them, it's a fairly little bit nuanced answer. When it comes to uh, the cardinal virtues, the moral virtues, the simple answer is that we acquire virtues through practice, through habit, by repeated acts of the virtues until they become second nature to us. The same way, you know, you could learn how to play the piano by uh, patiently copying the teacher's instructions, but after much practice over time, the motor memory kicks in and you'll be sure. able to do it as a second nature mm -hmm. or learning a language or something like that. Um, but how do you get started with, with practicing the acts of virtue? Well, uh, with prudence, prudence is in, in some sense kind of the, the chief that binds them all together. If you don't have prudence, the others aren't going to do you much good because you can run off half-cocked and do some crazy thing that, that I mean, you, you may be doing it in fortitude, but you can you know, run off a cliff like a lemming and be mm. awful fortitude about yeah. it, but you're still going to fall to your death. Yep. So you've got to yep. have that prudence to put all of them in balance. Um, and really the best way to acquire prudence is to spend time with prudent people. Yeah. Spend time with prudent people. And uh, St. Thomas divides prudence up into a bunch of subsidiary virtues, and, and one of them is the virtue of docility, that you be teachable, uh, that you keep your eyes open and your ears open and your mouth shut, uh, and, uh, and listen to what other people have to say. Don't always think that you know best in every circumstance, but be willing to learn from people who know better than you. That's, and then spend time with people who really seem to have good judgment, who have it together in the spiritual life and, and their mor moral life as human beings. Um, uh, so don't isolate yourself. You know, don't 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 be an autodidact and try to learn everything from Wikipedia. You know, spend time with real life human beings. Um, uh, you know, when it comes to the other things, uh, acts of justice, fortitude, and temperance, having a rule of life that you try to stick to um, is uh, is a good policy. So you can you can be continent. That is to say, you can actually refrain from you know these acts of self indulgence without having the virtue of temperance. You can you can sort of grit your teeth. And uh, and clench your fists and and muscle through the hard work of of you know resisting temptation. Now, uh, that's good. It's not quite fortitude and temperance because it hasn't become a habit to you. But by following a rule of life, uh, you know, making those boundaries for yourself. You know, I'm I'm not going to eat the second piece of pecan pie. I'm not going to pour myself the second glass of wine. Whatever it is, and living by that rule, eventually uh, the the practice will turn into a habit, and so forth with those other virtues. And so. Um, you know, this, with justice, reflecting on uh, the needs and the dignity of other people um, is very helpful. Again, always spending time with just people, being involved in the, the works of justice that the Church uh, promotes. That's another way. Anything you can do to sort of get yourself down into the warp and woof of the moral life, uh, books alone are not enough. They're a big help, uh, but you actually have to do it in the living. When it comes to the theological virtues— um, the Church tells us that these are infused. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so there is a mysterious element to how we acquire them, but we can cooperate with them. So everything we've said about practicing a virtue in order to strengthen a habit, we can apply that to the theological virtues as well, uh, knowing that the ultimate origin of them comes uh, from God by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's another beautiful truth. 
The Church also teaches that there is an infused, that is to say supernatural gift, of the moral virtues. So you can have the acquired moral virtue through practice, but the Holy Spirit can also come alongside a believer to someone in sanctifying grace and, uh, and infuse those virtues in a supernatural way. And you see that sometimes in a person's life, someone who's, you know, their, their habits are vicious and their life is disordered, and it just seems like, whammo, God hits them up the side of the head, and all of a sudden they really are a different human being. Yeah. And they can cooperate with that and, and, and form those better habits as well. Caitlin, what a great, great question. Thank you so much for checking in with us uh, here in Pennsylvania, and uh, very sorry to uh, hear about your dad. And that opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go now to Tanner in Ohio, who normally listens to us via Apple Podcast. Hey, Tanner, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, Dr. Anders, thanks for taking my call. Uh, My question for you today comes from my wife, Olivia. Her question is, why were the Israelites the chosen people, and are they still the chosen people today? Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So one th- here's one thing that we cannot say about God choosing the Israelites or God choosing Abraham. God did not choose them because of their virtues. It's not like God looked down on planet Earth and said, let me find the most righteous people I can find, and I'll take them to myself. It's pretty adamant in Scripture that that's not the reason. God's, God's choices uh, were different. Now, the Scripture doesn't tell us why God chose Abraham and his progeny, and so we could say his choice was inscrutable, but I do think we can reverse-engineer the choice a little bit from the Incarnation. In other words, the ultimate purpose of the election of Israel was that from this line, from this stock, from this family, would come forth the Messiah who would be the Savior of all the earth. And there are some things we can know about the Incarnation, about the person of Christ in the Incarnation and the historical moment of the Incarnation, and then we can sort of reason backwards to, well, maybe that's why God chose Abraham and Israel in this particular time and place. And this is just speculation on my part. This is not divine revelation. This is just Anders, like, running his mouth and trying to come (laughs) up with a good idea. So um, St. Irenaeus, 2nd century father of the Church, said that the, the Incarnation had to be delayed to this specific moment because mankind had to become habituated to the Divine Logos, right? That there, was a, that there was a preparation in history and culture that made the the opportune moment for the Incarnation. And what that looked like was, on the part of the Hebrews, that there was a moral formation in, in uh, who the person of God was as he revealed himself to Abraham and Isaac and the rest of the patriarchs, um, uh, life under the law, uh, all of those things that Israel had as part of her special patrimony. And at the same time, there was a development in culture going on um, in Hellenism, in Greek philosophy, in science, um, a, a universalism about the human person that was really the patrimony of the Greeks. And the Christian Church combines both of these things uh, in the Church Catholic and you really needed you needed the combination of 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 Hebrew and Greek together uh, to give the Christian faith the kind of universal character and the embrace of faith and reason that that really is the Catholic gift to the world. It's mm-hmm. this, this combination of faith, reason, um, you know, science, philosophy, history, which is the Hebrew contribution to the human mm-hmm. person, um, and so it had to happen at that particular historical moment, and. You know, if mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been enough for Christ to become incarnate in, say, a uh, a first-century Athenian, 
right? That, that while the culture of Athens, the culture of ancient Greece, had much to commend it, and there are definitely elements of that that are incorporated into the Catholic tradition, you needed the Hebrew contribution. And the thing about the Hebrews, quoting Isaiah, was that they had no beauty or majesty that should attract us to them, that they were a people that uh, were of, of low means. They didn't have, um, you know, great architecture or <laughs> tremendous uh, philosophical tradition or scientific discovery or even military conquest, except for a very brief period. Mm. They, they were kind of an afterthought in the ancient world, and it underscores th- the truth that's illustrated by Christ's uh, birth in a stable in Bethlehem, that God can choose the lowly things of this world to shame the wise. And so uh, this incorporation of, of sort of... Uh, uh, you know, a culture that, from one point of view, would seem to have little to commend it to the world, with the heights of human wisdom, um, in an opportune moment, in a time and place, uh, you know, in the height of the Roman Empire, that permitted the Christian faith to go forth and be ultimately universal. I think we can see a kind of intelligibility in the thing after the fact. Tanner, we hope that's helpful for you and for your wife as well. Thanks so much for your phone call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Two lines open at the moment if you want to get in. Uh, the number 833-288-EWTN for Dr. David Anders. 833-288-3986. Here is Andy now in Boise listening on the great Salt and Light Radio. Hello, Andy. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi. I have, I'm a new Catholic. I've been Catholic about a year, and I have a question about the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And it's kind of a nitpicky thing, but it's been on my mind for quite a while, so I thought I would call and ask. In the in the liturgy of the Eucharist, when the priest is starting to bless the bread and the wine, he says the words, Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have received the bread, etc. Mm-hmm. So there's not much syntactic um, syntax in there, like commas, to separate things out. So if it said, blessed are you, Lord, comma, God of all creation, that would make sense to me. But when they say, blessed are you, Lord, God of all creation, it almost sounds like they're saying that God is a part of the created order, which I know can't be what they intended. And I don't know if you like to parse these things out like this or not, or if it's just, you know, being silly nitpicky, but I wonder if you had any insight into that uh, translation or that phrasing. Yeah, thanks. So it's an interesting question. While we were talking, I was attempting to pull up the Latin typical edition of the of the of the words, and so I could compare the Latin to the English translation. And mm. and uh, the internet has failed me, and I haven't I haven't gotten the text the way I want it in oh, front of me, to, okay. so I can't exegete it. Um, but you know, if you really want to be, if you want to get that level of nitpicky, you really have to go from the Latin text. You don't want to go from the English translation. The English translation is, uh, well, let's say. Over the last, you know, 50 years, has been problematic. <laughs> All right, they've had yeah. to have n- numerous revisions of the English text, um, and uh, in order to bring it more closely in line with the Latin. Mm-hmm. And uh, and honestly, my my Latin is a bit rusty, and I don't remember, you know, to what extent rules of punctuation are used within modern ecclesiastical Latin, and what effect that might have on the syntax uh, of the sentence. But but. I honestly, to be truthful, I, I I would not put any stock in those kinds of distinctions. I'm, I'm you know, the, the members of the translation committee are they try to write in good and intelligible English, but they're human beings, and you know sure. they they may may not always follow the same rules of usage that that you would like, and 
I'm sort of reminded of my Presbyterian mother who used to spend um, half of the time listening to the sermon every week, jotting down the grammatical errors that the Ooh. pastor made during his homily, and Ooh. she would she would be sure to inform him after, okay. the, after the sermon. You know, so I wouldn't I wouldn't stress too much about it, honestly. Okay. Fair enough. And knowing you, David, you're probably going to research further during the break. Yeah, I, will. Right? I will. Of course you will. Uh, Andy, thanks so much for your call. In a moment, we'll talk with Steve in Oklahoma, also Cindy in Texas. Several lines are open for you. An excellent time to call in if you have a question for Dr. David Anders or if you'd like to explain uh, what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic. In any event, the number is 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion. It's called a communion for you on this Tuesday afternoon here on EWTN. A couple of lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Before we get back to the phones, as I knew you would, you did a little research over the uh, break period there. Yes, so we had a question about the the punctuation yeah. in the language of the Mass when the priest prays, Blessed are you, comma, Lord God of all creation, comma, for through your goodness we have received the bread we offer, etc. Yes. And he wanted to know what we could make syntactically of the placement of the commas. And I said, well, not much, because <laughs> if, you really want, if you really want to dig down into the theology of the liturgy, you have to use the typical edition, which right, is right. the Latin. And it is punctuated differently. Is it? I have just found. Yes, I was just looking it up right now. So it's benedictus est, so that's blessed are you, yeah. comma, Domine, Lord, comma, Deus Universi, which is God, and then Universi is a genitive, which is possession, God of everything, Mm -hmm. comma. So different placement of the punctuation between the Latin and the English, and I think it may resolve our caller's problem and uh, question and difficulty. Well, we certainly hope so. Call to communion here on this uh, Tuesday afternoon on EWTN. Congratulations going out to another member of the EWTN radio family, Holy Holy Rosary Academy Radio in Anchorage, Alaska, celebrating their eighth year with EWTN. Congratulations to Glenn Beigel and Brian Metris and their great team there at KHRA in Anchorage from all of us here at EWTN. All right, back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Steve in Oklahoma, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Steve, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, hi. Um, I'm 68 years old, and I'm considering getting remarried. Um, when I was back in my 30s, I was married in the church, but I got divorced. So my question is, and I'm going to try to pursue uh, annulment, but with, at my age, who knows how long it would take, but I'm going to try that. Well, my question is, I know that I won't be able to go to the communion if I'm having relations with my wife, uh, if my new wife. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I if I go to confession, I don't believe I can do a valid confession because if I confess that I've had relations with my current wife, um, I can't very well be saying that I'm not going to do it again. So am I prohibited from well, making Steve, a confession? Well, Steve, if I could appreciate the call, if I could ask you... Um, is a pointed question. Do you think it's immoral to have sexual relations with a woman to whom you're not validly married? Uh, yeah. Okay. So if you believe that activity to be immoral, why would you plan in advance to engage in it? 
I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, I had a moment of weakness and I slipped and I'm going to go to confession. But to make the positive plan to intend to habitually engage in an activity that you that you yourself understand to be immoral. That I mean, that's that's a problematic point of place to be. So I, what I would challenge you with is if you if you're persuaded that that's an immoral activity is plan not to do it. That's number one. And I don't know. I mean, there, there's really no reason why anyone should want to go to communion if their desire is not to reorient their moral life according to the teaching of God in the church, right? I mean, communion will do you no good. It's of no benefit to yeah. you if you're if you're in a if you're in if you're unrepentant. Now, again, that's entirely different from. Look, I am weak. I am a man of flesh. I have temptations. I lack the virtue of fortitude and temperance. I habitually fall. If that's your situation, you can go to confession every day, right? Every day, as long as you're making a firm purpose of amendment. I mean, you don't have to be perfect to go to confession. You can be just a right so-and-so and go to confession. You can be a real piece of work and go to confession. But the point of confession is the intent to amend your life. It's not just to check a liturgical box so you can qualify for a ritual. It's the desire to genuinely reform my life and to begin to live virtuously in imitation of Christ and in union with Christ through the Eucharist and through the Church. So, I mean, that's, that's my yeah. response. Yeah. Steve, is that helpful for you? No, I, I just I need more clarification. Is the ritual that you're talking about going to the Mass or get, receiving communion? Right, 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 right. Yeah, so, so what I said, if your purpose in going to confession is just to check a box so that you qualify for a ritual, that would be the ritual of receiving communion, right? Then I would say that there's no point in that, right? Because that, the, the, the goal of communion is mm. communion. Yeah. It's to commune with Christ, not just in our outward bodily behavior, not just through the ritual of consumption, but by conforming our life to him, to take up our cross and follow him, to become disciples of Christ in, in, in the integrity of our person, integrally, body, soul, mind, intellect, will, all the rest of it. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I mean, I, there would be no point in going to communion if, if, that's, uh, if that's your position. Now, what I would really encourage you to do is if you plan to marry again, is by all means, wait until you receive an annulment. And I, I know you said you're 68, and I recognize that you may feel like the clock is ticking, but it's ticking in more ways than one. It, it may be ticking on your nuptials, but it's ticking on your life. I mean, mm -hmm. actuarially, the uh, average man uh, in America lives 79, 80 years. Mm -hmm. You know, I hope you're in great health and live to 100, but I mean, you know, the insurance companies would put your odds at about 12 years at this point, right? And it's much more important to go to your death with a clean conscience than it is, uh, you know, to go to your death, uh, you know, with an invalid, uh, irregular relationship in your conscience. Steve, thanks so much for your call. We hope that is helpful for you. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Cindy in Texas now, listening online, EWTN.com. Hello, Cindy. What's on your mind today? Well, uh, I have a question as to an annulment as well. Uh, why does the Catholic Church make annulment so difficult in the form that they are required to fill out and complete, and what is the purpose of these very 
personal questions for the person seeking an annulment. Um, yes, thank you so much. I really appreciate the question. So the, the purpose of the forms and the purpose of the process of the annulment is it's the same purpose for which a trial in a civil court or a criminal court calls a jury. Now, this is, there's not a jury here. It's a different legal system. But if someone's accused of a crime in the, civil, I mean, in the criminal court, um, you have to prove your case to a jury. And the point, the purpose of the jury is to determine a question of fact. That's the whole point. You know, did this guy do it or not? All right? Or in a civil case, is this fellow liable or not for this tort? Mm -hmm. Okay? It's just fact-finding. Uh, in, a, in a marriage tribunal, the purpose of all the form filling out is exactly the same. It is to get at the truth of the thing. What are the facts of the case? Because the, the, the tribunal's goal is not to legitimate your next marriage or to delegitimate your next marriage. It is to find out whether you are validly married already. Because Christ said, what God has joined together, man cannot separate. So mm -hmm. if you are validly married to someone, you cannot take a, a second spouse without committing bigamy. Right? You, you, only one wife, only mm -hmm. one husband until death do us part. If you really have another spouse, you, you, know, you may not be able to live with them for some reason, but you're bound by that marriage until you die. That's the teaching of Jesus. Um, and so the purpose of the marriage tribunal is to answer that question. Are you validly married? Now, sometimes it's a slam dunk, right? There may be someone who, whose marriage completely lacked canonical form or some essential ingredient that's obvious on the face of it. And let's say somebody got up at his wedding, and I'm making this one up off the top of my head, obvious, it's a bit ridiculous, and said, you know, I will love, honor, and cherish you until next Tuesday. <laughs> right. It it be patently obvious that that fellow did not intend what the Catholic Church meant by marriage. Usually mm -hmm. it's not that obvious, uh, but there are some cases that are pretty clear-cut like that. Mm -hmm. But most people today, when they apply for an annulment, apply under this ground. They say, I wasn't psychologically capable of making the commitment of marriage at that age. That, that mean, there, are, are, there are other reasons a marriage can be found invalid, but that's the principal one that most people rely on today. And when they do that, well, I mean, how do you establish that you weren't sufficiently mature to make that decision? That's going to require a lot of evidence. And because the church, like, I, I know a guy, a friend of mine, who is a judicial vicar. He, he's the head canonist in his diocese, and he rules on these annulment cases. And what he said to me one time in a homily was, he says, look, I will do everything within my power to help you obtain an annulment, but I won't go to hell for you, mm, yeah. meaning I won't violate my conscience. I'm not going to lie on a form so that you can get an annulment if the facts say otherwise, because I, the, the priest has to sign a document, and it's, pretty, it's a pretty severe oath saying that he has absolutely done his due diligence and is in the best of his conscience before God and the Church is not lying and is representing the thing the way it really is. He says, look, I'm not going to sign a document like that and perjure myself before God mm -hmm. and go to hell for you, but I will do everything else within my power to make this happen. I will look for every possible grounds for an annulment, but if there's no grounds, there's no grounds. Um, now, another reason why it can be a lengthy process, to be honest with you, um, there are some dioceses where there's, there's, there's one judge, you know, I mean, this, there's just not enough staff. Yeah. I mean, you, you have somebody called a defender of the bond who argues the other side of the case. But, you can, I mean, just very few people working the case. And they have a stack of annulments to go through that's a mile high. 
And, you know, dioceses don't have infinite wealth, contrary to the impression that many people are given. Uh, they have limited budgets, and, you know, you, they don't charge for them, and you just you have to sit there and do the work. You have to go through the papers one at a time and you mark one off and mark one off. Uh, I mean, church knows this is an issue. They know it's a problem. They know it's an impediment for many people. They do their best, uh, but the resources of, a di- of diocese are strained. And uh, they work at the pace they can work. Yeah. Cindy, thanks so much for your call. Hope that's helpful for you. It is called a communion here on EWTN. Tomorrow morning, it's the Sunrise Morning Show with Annie Mitchell and Matt Swaim. Tomorrow, it'll be Old Testament stories every Catholic should know with Father Rob Jack. Plus, all the latest news, weather, sports, and everything else you need to start your day a better way. Check it out starting at 6 a.m. Eastern right here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Karen in Illinois listening on her Alexa device. Hi, Karen. What's on your mind today? Uh, hello. Hi, Karen. I, uh, I am very concerned about the artificial intelligence, uh, hap- the things that are happening with it these days. Um, I am concerned that the movie studios can uh, scan an actor's performance and uh, thereby own that actor. And also, it concerns me that AI can be used to uh, write books Yes, thank you. I really appreciate the call, and I I think you're not alone, and uh, this is not an area of of expertise for me, but I try to keep my finger on the pulse of the culture a little bit, and I'm aware that there are—this is an issue, oddly enough, where it seems that people across the political and ideological spectrum are in agreement. I, I know people who are on the far left and people on the far right uh, that are both equally concerned— about some of the threats that may be posed by artificial intelligence. And, and you've named some of them. Here are some that occur to me. One, of course, is this issue of intellectual property. Um, uh, their AI can be used to create um, products, whether text or image or music, and it functions more or less by plagiarism. It goes out into the public domain and finds mm-hmm. images and, and, and tunes and melodies and plots, and uh, and hacks them up a bit and then reproduces them and puts them out as original work without without giving credit, and uh, and that's I know I know people I have a, I have family members that work in the arts that are really 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 concerned about this because it's cutting directly at their livelihood. Um, another issue that is uh, that is very concerning is the power of AI to be used to produce fake news, otherwise known as propaganda or mass uh, manipulation of the populace. Uh, you know, the creation of, uh, of uh, false academic articles or medical journals uh, purporting to give evidence for spurious cures, for example, that have the capacity to really lead people to uh, unknowingly into self-harm. I mean, this uh, political manipulation, a mm-hmm. lot, of, lot of issues uh, that, that are raised. So, you know, uh, I am not aware of the church addressing this issue head-on in any magisterial teaching or bishops' conferences or bishops that have addressed it. Um, But it's the kind of thing that Catholic ethics would definitely think and talk about because it would fall within 
uh, the concern for the common good, that is, the purview of the church's social doctrine. And so things like a just wage and the rights to private property and, uh, and the, pr- the priority of truth in public discourse, all of those things are consistent with Catholic social teaching. And I'd say it's about time that the Bishop's Conference or, or some Catholic leaders uh, produce some uh, official response to it. And I imagine one will probably be coming down the pike soon enough. Probably Hopefully so. not written by an AI. <laughs> yeah, that would not be good. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN, going out of Vermont, talking with Ted, listening on our, hate, our Lady of Perpetual Help radio. Hello, Ted. What's on your mind today, sir? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, Dr. Anders, I was talking to a Baptist uh, fellow last night, and he said there's an outer part of heaven that uh, if people are not quite ready to enter into heaven, that they're kind of cleaned up in this area, um, in this outer part of heaven, before they get to enter heaven. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Um, Yeah, we call it purgatory. (laughs) We call it purgatory. Now, um, there is, uh, it's interesting the the Anglican writer C.S. Lewis, who is very popular w- among some Baptists, uh, held views that often were very similar to Catholic views, and he sometimes would change the vocabulary a little bit. He wrote a book called The Great Divorce that pictured heaven as a kind of continuum like this, and that book is a very popular among evangelicals even though it sort of sneaks purgatory in the back door. Now, um, the, 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 the dominant view of heaven among Catholic theologians is of a beatific vision in which we have an immediate knowledge of the essence of God that satisfies all desire, and there's a kind of static element to it because you sort of get the whole package all at once. There is a tradition in the Catholic East, especially associated with St. Gregory of Nyssa, that sees the afterlife, the life of heaven, as a sort of eternal, or better, better yet, an everlasting asymptotic approach to the mystery of God, where one goes further up and further in, always deepening one's experience of God, but never completely penetrating. Mm. Um, that actually is what underlies C.S. Lewis's vision, more, more than... Um, in the, than a kind of bifurcation into heaven and purgatory, Lewis was inspired by an Eastern Catholic vision of this sort of asymptotic approach. And if you've ever read his novel, The Last Battle, there's a heaven-like scene where one of the characters, I believe it's, it's, a, it's a unicorn, uh, neighs and yells uh, further up and further in. And that's, mm. a, that's very much the sense of, that you get from Gregory of Nyssa. Uh, and he thought, and this, this also comes across in The Great Divorce, that the further you go... The more real everything gets, the more solid you get, the greater your capacity to enjoy. And so at the outskirts of heaven, uh, in his fictional world, you know, the blades of grass are a lot realer than you are, and stepping on them is like stepping on knives. And as you become habituated to this life of virtue and beauty and goodness, you get more and more solid, more and more real, greater and greater capacity to enter ever more deeply into the ultimate reality that is God himself. So that was a that was a vision that Lewis put out there, which I'm not surprised would circulate among some Baptists, uh, but uh, like you said, or like we said, it was um, uh, some some strange resonance with the Catholic doctrine of purgatory, which really is just the antechamber to heaven. Appreciate your call, Ted, and uh, always nice to quote unicorns on this program. Oh, yes. Definitely. Appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Amy has a rather interesting question. This is uh, an email that came in uh, last week. She says, in so many words, 
You said about those who are not in the grace of God that all their good deeds done through that time will, will not be accounted for. Well, if that's accurate, I wonder about the many good people of the world who are not of the faith. Also, I'm devastated to think that any good that I had done in my life while away from the church will not be accounted for. Yet, will my sins still be accounted for through that time? Thanks, Amy. Yes, thank you. So, you're, um, there's more nuance to the position I offered than you suggest. All right. So, okay. first of all, the fact that someone is not in visible communion with the Catholic Church does not mean that they necessarily lack grace. All right, and the church teaches that God offers sufficient grace to every soul, Catholic or not, to be saved. And so you can never say of someone that person does not have the grace of God. We don't—God can say that. We can't say that. So just because someone's not a card-carrying Catholic, we can't draw the conclusion they don't have the grace of God. Mm, okay. and, uh, and that would include uh, those that have left the church, maybe in invincible ignorance of its teaching, perhaps— um, and, uh, and, and so that, you know, you, you won't be able to make that judgment. Secondly, let's say you really don't have grace. You, you are definitively in the state of mortal sin. Does that mean that all of your moral activity is so vitiated as to be of no value whatsoever at all? No, I never said that, no, nor does the Church teach that. That moral activity will not merit the reward of heaven. But say, for example... Uh, you develop the habit of fortitude. You know, okay. you're like one of these uh, health enthusiasts who learns how to go uh, sit in like 40 degree water for an hour and a half, Ooh. you know, and you, you you can go march up Mount Everest, you know, with bare feet, you know, wearing a pair of boxer shorts or something. And <laughs> there, there are people who do such things. Oh, and yeah. you really develop, you may be mean, you may be dishonest, but maybe you've got that fortitude business developed to a very high degree. Well, that's not going to get you into heaven. However... Once you turn your personality to the pursuit of grace and goodness, and you do enter more fully into the life of God and the church, you bring that habit with you. You bring that natural fortitude that you developed with you, and now that becomes a tool that you can put at the service of God and neighbor. Okay. So it would be false to say of that period of your life that it was of no value at all. Never said it was of no value at all. It just doesn't merit heaven. But it can feed into a life of grace and goodness that can bring overwhelming benefit both now and in eternity. Okay. Appreciate that. Thank you so much, uh, Amy, for your email. Here's one now from Matt. Hello, I am a practicing Catholic who is going to join my dear friend who is a practicing Ethiopian Orthodox for their divine liturgy, in quotes there. In that tradition, people drink holy water as part of their liturgy. It is acceptable for a non-Baptist Orthodox to partake in the drinking of the holy water from the perspective of the Orthodox. That should There's a typo there. Is it acceptable? Also, is it acceptable for me as a Catholic to drink that holy water? Why or why not? Thanks, Matt. Yes, thank you. So the Church says that you cannot partake of their communion. Mm-hmm. You can't receive the body of Christ in that liturgy. Uh, because the, it ultimately it is the communion that signals our full inclusion with the people of God, and and of course the Orthodox are not in full communion with the Pope, and so we don't we don't partake of the sacrament of our unity with them. Other aspects of their liturgical celebration you could. I personally know of no objection 
to say drinking um, Ethiopian Orthodox holy water. It's not the same thing as Holy Communion, right? Um, so you can, I, I believe, you can participate to that extent. But you you draw the line at uh, at the reception of Holy Communion. Matt, thanks so much uh, for your email. Here is one now from John in Bel Enjoy, Air. Enjoy, by the way. That sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, it does. Yeah. This is from John in Bel Air, Maryland. Hello, Dr. Anders. I'm a cradle Catholic. My wife is a cradle Lutheran. We were married in the Catholic Church 31 years ago. All three of our children were raised Catholic. My wife has been attending Catholic Mass with our family since we got married, but now that the kids are grown and moved away, she has started to also go to a Lutheran service. She doesn't seem interested in RCIA, but rather seems to be re-engaging with her Lutheran upbringing instead. Is there any anything I can do to persuade her of the benefits of becoming a Catholic? Yeah, so, uh, so they've been married, what, is it 30 years, they said? Uh, yeah, 31, right. 31 years. So in, in my judgment, um, and look, I, I was saying this, not knowing you, not knowing the couple, not knowing your wife, um, I think the best way you can persuade your wife to be interested in Catholicism is by not pushing Catholicism. Mm. And there is a, there is a uh, well-established psychological tendency called resistance, Mm-hmm. That when p- people push too hard in one direction, folks push back in the other direction. And so I would say that the last 31 years of your marriage have been your attempt to performatively demonstrate the goodness, truth, and beauty of Catholicism. And you need to lean into that goodness, truth, and beauty with everything that you've got, especially as it regards the dignity with which you regard and treat your wife's conscience. Yes. Right? And that the worst thing you could do would be to make yourself and the faith obnoxious to her by being, like, obstinate about it. Yeah, I don't want that. John, thanks so much uh, for your email. A fascinating question, and uh, I'm glad we could get it in on today's program. Hey, Dr. David Andrews, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. We do this program on EWTN Radio at 2 p.m. Eastern, live every weekday, Monday through Friday, with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, which is, of course, 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Uh, Charles will have the podcast posted for you in the next hour or two at EWTNRadio.net. EWTNRadio.net. You can listen to today's show, yesterday's show. Go back as far as you wish. They're all there waiting for you. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. Hope to see you tomorrow on the Wednesday edition of Call to Communion. Until then, God bless. God bless.